When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Drill Down, the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today is July 14, and this is episode number 52. Well, just ahead, Norwegian Cruise Line sues for the right to make sure all of its passengers are vaccinated. Plus, American Airlines is certain that business travel is coming back, and the CEO tells us why. And Purple Innovation CEO Joe Megabo tells us why bloated inventories helped them crush sales during the pandemic. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you're fully vaccinated, grab someone by the lapels and say, listen to the Drill Down podcast. Tell them to go to their favorite podcast platform and check out our show and tell them why you enjoy it so much. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. We're going to talk about the business stories behind some stocks on the move and get some news from our executive producer, Isaac Webster. Isaac, some of the three most important developments in the world of business today. Well, Corey, we got to start with the Fed. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said inflation had increased notably and would likely remain elevated in the coming months before it moderates. The Fed chief was testifying to the House Financial Services Committee on Capitol Hill. Powell said pandemic-related bottlenecks and other supply constraints created, quote, just the perfect storm of high demand and low supply that led to rapid price increases for certain goods and services. He expects these increases should partially reverse as the effects of the bottlenecks unwind. Powell went on to say the Fed shouldn't raise interest rates due to a one-time price increase. We'll see how one-time they are and how much the genie's in the bottle. I mean, so many of these people we talk to say that inflation in one place causes them to raise prices in another place, which yeah. ends up being a real cycle. Um, I know yeah. it's off of low numbers from last year. I know that used cars, as we've mentioned earlier, was a third of the most recent CPI change, but still, inflation begets inflation. And then next story, OPEC. OPEC members reached a compromise with the UAE, United Arab Emirates. Reports say they have agreed to lift the amount of oil the UAE can eventually pump. Now, this is said to be part of a wider agreement with Russia-led producers to boost global supplies. The compromise still needs approval from the cartel and a wider group called OPEC Plus that includes Russia-led producers. A meeting to vote on this is yet to be scheduled. And what this means, though, is that any new output from a broader production increase deal reached earlier this month won't hit markets immediately. Yeah, and we'll see about this deal. I mean, some members of UAE were already denying this deal, that this was a thing. Others saying this is a thing. I'll believe it when the vote happens. 
Next, let's talk about climate. The European Union and China announcing sweeping plans to limit greenhouse gas emissions. The EU's plan would sharply cut the bloc's reliance on fossil fuels and place a first-of-its-kind levies on imports from high-emitting countries. Both plans, EU and China, will increase costs for industry and consumers, and they drew criticism from environmentalists as not going far enough to slow climate change. Beijing and Brussels are acting months ahead of the world's next climate change conference, and that's in November in Glasgow. Now, Corey, what stocks are you drilling, at, drilling down on today? Well, I'll tell you the first one. You ready? I'm ready. Just checking. Norwegian Cruise Line. Norwegian Cruise Lines. Uh, trades under NCLH. Shares fell 3.5% today. But over the past 12 months, shares have risen 64%. What is going on with Norwegian? Well, they want to sh- they want to sail their boats, obviously. Um, and to do so, they have sued Florida's Surgeon General after the state barred businesses from requiring proof of COVID-19 vaccinations. Now, Norwegian is sticking to its policy to require everyone get vaccinated for all crew and passengers, including children, for initial sailings starting uh, October 31st after more than a year-long hiatus and, of course, billions of dollars uh, that they have foregone during that time. Now, the policy in Florida, uh, if, they, if they actually go ahead and do require these vaccines, Florida could fine them as much as $5,000 for each passenger affected. Now, the company says that Florida's ban also disrupts the flow of interstate and international commerce in violation of a clause in the U.S. Constitution that gives Congress the ability to regulate this stuff, not the guys in Florida. But Florida uh, has tried to go in its own way during this entire pandemic. Florida is going to be Florida. Yes, it is. Florida man. In this case, Florida man being the Florida Surgeon General. Uh, and uh, the suit is, is really interesting. CEO uh, Frank Del Rio of uh, Norwegian, very outspoken about uh, the, the rules coming out of Florida and the CDC. A lot of criticism for the CDC, even though he meets with them twice a week. Here's what he had to say back in May. We're perplexed. We're flabbergasted. We're outraged. Uh, airplanes, casinos, um, just about every venue. And, and when we talk about that we're willing to vaccinate every single person aboard the cruise ship, there isn't another venue on earth, not a school, not a factory, not your office building, apartment building, much less an entertainment venue like a casino, a hotel, a resort, that can make that claim. We will have we will be the safest place on earth, by definition. On top of that uh, vaccination mandate, we're gonna implement the 74 healthy sale panel recommendations. That one-two punch is unbeatable. No one on earth has it, yet um, the CDC continues to treat us differently. We dare say unfairly. and, and look, it's not like the CDC has done a great job of controlling the virus around the country. We, we rank number one in the world for the most, uh, uh, the most infections, the most hospitalization, I think the most deaths, yet they, they pick on the cruise industry to an extreme that is just unbelievable, unexplainable, and, um, you know, uh, frustrates us to no end. So, love that. CEO speaking his mind, but also acting, in this case, acting against Florida and its requirements uh, to proof of vaccination. But just because everyone's vaccinated, Isaac, doesn't mean you doesn't don't get mean, COVID. Doesn't mean you're not going to get COVID, myself example, included. Uh, you know, uh, Corey, what Corey's alluding to is that I am fully vaccinated. I have been since 
February, and uh, yet I caught COVID last week in Provincetown. Um, you got yeah. COVID. I did. Uh, no, a lot uh, of people did. A, a lot, lot of, of people you were, you were a lot of with? Fu- a lot of, well, a number of my friends, a lot more people that I just know of, but, um, you know, a lot of, all of them fully vaccinated. And in Provincetown, Massachusetts, that's on Cape Cod for people that aren't aware, but um, it's a, you know, it's a summer vacation spot. It's swell. It's normally 3,000 people live in Provincetown over the summer. It's generally 60,000 people are visiting at any given week. And, um, you know, but in Provincetown last week, they were requiring proof of vaccination to many bars that people were frequenting. Um, The ones I went to, you had to show your uh, vaccination card for the most part. Um, There there were a few places that weren't doing that. Uh, yet there's a, there's a, you can read about it online. There's a, there's an outbreak there's of an outbreak. breakthrough infections and in fully vaxxed people like myself catching COVID. Now, how do you and, feel? Um, you know, for me, it's, for me, it's like a, a, a bad cold. Yeah. So the thing is with the vax, you know, you need to get vaccinated anyway, because when you're vaccinated, you, uh, if you do, if you do catch COVID, it, it's mild, it's milder. I have a very, very minimal chance of uh, hospitalization and death and all those things. And also I'm less infectious because I'm vaccinated. And so your family so, and your kids, everybody is, everybody's. Yeah. Yeah. Clear. Thankfully, I mean, knocking on so much wood, but you know, thankfully my, my family has not, uh, has not gotten COVID. So, and I have two young kids who are too young to be vaccinated yet. And uh, they've been tested multiple times. Um, and they are all still negative. So Thank that's goodness. good. And, you don't and I'm know on the tail end of it. I'm on the you tail end. You don't know end. if it's the Delta version or not. No, you know what? I don't know if it's a Delta version yet. I'm sure that they do somewhere in the science labs that they've run all the tests yeah. in. But I've actually called to find out if it was. Um, I have not gotten a call back yet. And if you get um, the Delta version, do you get Sky Miles with that or no? I think so. I yeah. think you should. Get, okay. I get an, I get a free so upgrade. I won't, I won't be praying for you because it seems like you're feeling okay. I am feeling so much better than I was. Sky Miles. There we have but it. here's the thing. Who wants a cold? No one. Just get vaccinated, people. Please. Please do it. What's your next drill down, Corey? Well, let's go down now. Not to Delta, but to American Airlines. Ah, uh, American Airlines. Trades under AAL. Shares rose over 2.5% today. And for the last 12 months, shares have risen 77%. What's the story with American? Okay, so American Airlines uh, came out with an update on the revenue guidance. And they basically said things are going better than they even predicted in their most recent uh, quarterly results. And they told the rest of the world to get ready for a little bit better quarter. They're not ready to announce it yet. But they said compared to 2019, they weren't going to be down 40%. They'll only be down 37.5%. All right, whatever, minor tweak. But things are a little bit better than they expected. They expected capacity uh, to be a little bit better. Uh, again, down about 25% from 2019. Earlier, they were saying they'd be down 20 to 25%. And the company is saying the cost per seat mile will be up. We've been talking lots and lots about inflation. Not as much as they had said earlier. Earlier they'd said between 13 and 17. We'll call it, just call it 15%. Now they're saying it's going to be closer to 11 or 11.5%. So things a little bit better. But uh, I thought it was really interesting, uh, you know, the big, big difference, right? So leisure travel, as you engaged in last week, Isaac, through the roof. People are going on vacations. People are going to see grandparents and parents that they haven't been able to see for a long time, for the entirety of COVID. And so vacation travel is booming. Business travel is not coming back. But will it? Well, here is the philosophy of Bill Parker, the CEO of American Airlines, 
talking at an investor conference a couple weeks ago. As we take a look out, out in the future, it really is tied to vaccination rates, offices opening, and then you know, ultimately, you know, business can get back to it. And you know, over the long run, uh, our view hasn't changed. Uh, our view has been really rooted in you know, every advancement in technology, communications technology, you know, ultimately leads and drives a need for people to get together. And I don't think uh, what we're going through right now is, is any different. Um, while there may be some you know, internal meetings that can be conducted like we're doing today, uh, it just drives the need for you know, more different you know, types of, of, uh, of, get, of, of getting together and travel. Whether that is people working remotely that now have to get back to a headquarters office or you know, new connections that have been made through these types of Zoom meetings that you know, inspire travel. So my confidence is that, that business travel is something that uh, is going to return over the long run will be a significant portion of our business. So, you know, I mean, obviously you expect an airline guy to be the true believer about airline necessity. But I do think it was interesting, this idea that the remote worker who now is going to stay remote will add a new type of travel, which is your kind of the check-in with the home office that didn't used to exist. And maybe that might make up for some of the lost uh, travel uh, from unnecessary team meetings. Maybe, but that does not mean that those companies are going to be paying business class fares to bring people back into the home office to say hello. Good point. Do do we get, wait, do we get to fly uh, business class for the business podcast network? Of course we do. We're first class. I mean, that's what I've been, that's what I've been charging you. Wait a minute. (laughs) Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Lennox. Linux, Linux International trades under the ticker LII. Shares fell 7% today, but over the past 12 months, they are higher by 30%. What's the story with Linux? So let's think about that, right? 30%, the market's up about 40% over that time. So Linux not doing great, but actually the company looks like it's doing well. Today it announced that their CEO, whose name is Todd Bluedorn, that after 15 years running this company, he's going to step down next year. Uh, he intends, he says, you know, he wants to spend more time with his family, all that stuff, but he's going to, he's going to be there for another year yet. And they're looking for a new CEO. Uh, and they raised their guidance saying that, uh, revenues were going to be up. Uh, they, again, had their, their prediction had been about 8%. Now they're saying it's going to be about 13% increase in revenues. But I was curious about, you know, why they hadn't benefited as much as other companies with the kind of stay at home trade, right? The, the, the pandemic renovation trade. Um, and it turns out they've seen some great results. Uh, they're going to give us their full results for the quarter on July 26. But I thought it was worth listening to what the CEO had to say a couple of weeks ago. Yet again, at another investor conference, here is the outgoing Todd Bluedorn. Uh, I, I think there's, there's a variable that, that we haven't quite quantified yet, um, but I think it's directionally helping, which is I think when people are spending more time in their homes, they're A, running their units longer, and be uh, fixing, you know, replacing their units and or fixing their units when they're break. I, uh, and I think that bodes well for the future. I think we at Lennox, and I think most companies are going to have some form of work from home, increased work from home than what we had pre-pandemic. So I, I think that's a longer-term phenomenon that's good for the industry that, quite frankly, will shorten the life cycle of the product, which will spin the replacement market even faster. So... More HVAC, whether you need your heat or your your AC, um, you always need your V. <laughs> but 
I thought it was super interesting, the idea that if you're home more, you're going to run the unit more and you're going to run the, you're going to wear the thing out and have to replace it. And Lennox will benefit from replacing broken down uh, uh, heating and cooling units in homes. Someone's got to do it. All right. All right. Well, up next, another company that's done very well during the pandemic and came into some really interesting problems that were all resolved by the pandemic. That company, Purple Innovations, you know their mattresses. You're going to love this interview with the CEO, Joe Megabow. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. ERA's event access and monitoring intelligence platform improves earnings season and the investor events in between through comprehensive calendar tracking, one-click event access, dynamic monitors, multicasting, and more. Powered by an advanced language processing engine, which consumes some 40,000 investor events annually across 10,000 global equities. Learn more at ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram at DrillDownPod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down. We're joined right now by the CEO of Purple Innovations, the mattress maker you all know and love. Uh, Joe Meglebo joins us right now. Joe, uh, good to see you across the uh, our, our Zoom-like interface here and hear you on the podcast. Um, you guys have entered into a business, a business I know a little bit. I, I did a lot of work on Tempur-Pedic back in the day, uh, back in the day being about maybe 15 years ago. Um, what has changed in the mattress industry over the course of the last 10 or 15 years? Oh, goodness. Well, certainly, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it was a great business model, a great category. Um, and part of that as a business, not necessarily from the consumer point of view, but as a business, you had you know tight category control, you know a, a, uh, a you know very few, almost really an oligopoly of major players um, that that really had uh, um, you know strong margins and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know channel strength. Um, the the and, S's, uh, right? The, it was Sealy, the S's originally. Simmons, but, yeah, but even and that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. because Temper, who I think was largely dismissed as a novelty. I mean, consider they they launched, you know, right on the end of waterbeds coming and going in the 70s. And uh, I, I think they were dismissed as uh, as the next fad. And in the end, bought marketed the as if they were marketed like Tang, right? It was, but, hey, it's exactly. technology from NASA. You know, it's, it seems exactly. silly. And, you know, and, and, and wine glasses on the edge of the mattress as you bounced and they didn't fall over. But, but you know, it's fascinating that they ended up buying one of the three S's and the other two S's had to join forces and ultimately acquired by private equity. And so, I mean, you know, temper clearly very much disrupted the industry. And, you know, Sleep Number came along about the same time, a very different business model because of their deeply technical sale. Um, they, right. they uh, own store. They own know, stores. They, they own were stores. in three hundred malls. Uh, Temper never did that. I, I, I saw Temper at the time, and, and I see you in a similar way, which is you've got much higher margins than your competitors and a very differentiated that, product. That, I saw, that, I saw more right. the Apple of mattresses. That, well, thank you. I uh, that's generous. But um, the uh, I think the Temper model is a good one to look at because I and I, I think we've been at times dismissed, kind of like Temper was in the early days. Um, as perhaps a marketing novelty, where in reality, we really do have a very technically different product and we like temper or manufacture of that different product. What I think's changed is I think there's been a bifurcation of the commodity value side of the mattress space with the advent of, you know, really Chinese imports and the internet. 
and the premium side, which is actually continuing to increase in price. What, what I find fascinating is, you know, roughly three quarters of all the units sold out there are less than a thousand dollars. You know, just inexpensive commodity mattress led by retailers like IKEA, Wayfair, Amazon, and Walmart who have largely vertically integrated or in the process of vertically integrating with house brands. You know, but those 75% of units only capture like 40% of industry revenue. Yeah, you know, yeah, the majority exactly. of the industry revenue is on the quarter of units on the premium side. And even that is split between sort of one to 2,000 and then 2,000 and beyond. And you know, the least expensive mattress we sell for a queen is $1,200. So you know, we are very much on the premium side where there's been much less disruption. And, you know, where on the low end, the focus has been on convenience and, you know, really how you win on commodity, lower your, you know, get, you know, capture as much of the margin you can by vertically integrate and be as easy and as convenient as possible. On the premium side, you win on technical differentiation. And the two biggest winners are Sleep Number and Tempur-Pedic, who both are built on a technical story. That's our whole game. We just believe we genuinely have a advancement that consumers are, are voting with their wallets and saying they agree we have something better. Well, and that's my Apple comparison, right, is, is, is that, that at the premium end, whether it's Temper or whether it's you, you've got of substantially most of the industry revenues and real gross margins. I mean, I think your gross margins last year were 47%. And that's, we, that's just uh, astounding. Yeah, we and we did very well last year. The, the big shift that happened last year, which it's dangerous to, to draw a trend line from last year, is with with COVID and our, our digital capabilities, we were uniquely able to capture a traditionally brick-and-mortar customer and bring them online because the premium buyer is 85% brick and mortar. Um, with stores shut down and an inability to buy in brick and mortar, we got we took a lot of share. And that our, our margins are so much better on DTC, it, it just distorted our margins up. Well, you were, okay, but you were still at 44% the year before. Um, that, that's uh, right, but which I want is to, more I want, of I want where that down. we so, are, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and okay, full disclosure, bef long before I started this podcast company, long before I was a shareholder of Purple, I played it completely wrong. When all the Costco's across the country shut down, I was like, I'm out of here. This stock's going nowhere. I mean, yeah, they can sell this stuff online, but uh, it was totally wrong. You you uh, really dominated online. Talk to me about what you did, what you tweaked in in the operations during that time frame. It was a, it was a chaotic time for all of us. Um, what was it like for Purple and where did you see suddenly you had this great advantage? Yeah, we uh, and I think it'll be important at the end of this to also talk about what's changed today versus last year. Is it's there's really a, a very different chapter going on right now. But uh, you know, we I mean, as a, as a manufacturer, one of the you know part of the strength we have is when when the pandemic first hit, and we were actually um, very concerned because you know we were selling in at the time just just shy of a, of a couple thousand wholesale doors. Memorial Day was coming up. And we were sitting on a bunch of inventory that was about to go out the door to all of our retail partners, and they stopped buying, obviously. So we had shelves full of inventory. We uh, had no idea what was in front of us, and we actually shut the plant down for about three weeks. Um, and I furloughed about a third of the company. Uh, you know, not a, not a great time for anybody. Um, what happened over those next three weeks was pretty remarkable. What we saw, the question was, were consumers going to uh, 
defer and wait until everything got back to normal? Or were they going to say, no, I need these products for my home? And over the next few weeks, with a combination of stimulus, a recognition that we're going to be home a while, a recognition that health and sleep are pretty important right now, suddenly demand grew a lot. And then the question is, who could meet that demand? What was remarkable is almost everyone panicked and pulled out of the market. Digital marketing spend disappeared. Yeah. The, the, the economics of marketing improved dramatically. And while everyone was pulling in, we doubled down and leaned in hard. We said, okay, we're going after this premium buyer. There is an addressable market we hadn't been reaching that we could find and go after and cast a much, much wider net than normal. In digital marketing, there is no double your spend, double your business. I mean, there's there's just diminishing returns. Last year, we did that. Really? We doubled our spend and we doubled our business. Um, so we were able to, and oh, by the way, with much better marketing efficiencies, we actually ended up with even better marketing efficiencies than the prior year. Um, and, and it was just a combination of an unusual addressable market that showed up our ability to really arbitrage market dynamics and our ability to reach that consumer and competition that just wasn't set up for digital as a primary channel. And we did remarkably well. So let's dig into that a little bit more. The marketing efficiencies that you got, how you did that marketing, what happened to the cost of the digital spend and how you found out what worked. Um, I, I have much to learn about the world of marketing, so teach me. Uh, and you came from Expedia. You obviously had this, this digital uh, background. Um, but what is it that worked for you in your digital advertising? How did you know it was working at the time? And presumably it also got a lot cheaper during that time frame. Yeah, we... Um I mean, until recently, we had mostly been a performance or or direct response driven um, marketing spend was the majority of our spend, uh, which is really how do we capture people in market looking for mattress and reach the right demographic? Because, again, we're not we're not going to win the auction model if you're looking for a three hundred dollar mattress. You know, they'll find us, say, this is ridiculously expensive. You guys are crazy. The auction model of of buy an ad, right, the second someone does a Google search for a cheap mattress for sale. Yeah, Exactly. There's a lot of consumers out there that just want value. They have no interest. And again, remember, it's the majority of transactions are these inexpensive mattresses. So the question was, how do we find the right audiences with the right message and make the CAC, the, the, the acquisition cost, the customer acquisition cost work? Um, now, part of the advantage we have with our unit economics is when our average selling price for a mattress is close to $2,000, and you know you already talked about our gross margins in the, in the 40s, we have a lot of, of acquisition cost to play with and still run a very profitable business. And that's what we did. We knew what our sort of what our, our maximum uh, return on investment could be tweaked algorithmically how to really find these premium audiences and then just leaned in really hard. And so let me let me drill into that even a little deep, deeper then. Um, is that about digital advertising? Is it about search? Is it about uh, certain media to be on online? Is it email marketing or is it all the above? Yeah, well, it's... Um, <laughs> It is a very data-driven, complex channel today. Now, the majority of our spend are dominated by the two biggest channels out there, which is Google's holdings, and and we actually do an enormous amount on digital video. It's how we really launch the business. So we spend, a, a relative to the market, a disproportionate amount on YouTube, things like pre-roll ads. 
um, and Facebook, which includes Instagram. Um, yeah, and we and both of those channels are really good at segmentation and targeting, and it's just a matter of how sophisticated are you in finding those targets and leaning into them. And we've built a really amazing team. And it's not even just an audience put an ad. It's it's the full journey mapping. I mean, we have millions of consumer, basically consumer touch point flows that we model out and lean into that's all algorithmically driven to allow us to maximize you know, how much are we going to pay for any given placement and which placements? I mean, even in a given campaign, we may have 30 or 40 iterations of an ad unit that we algorithmically put out and optimize to the winners. So it's very data driven. Um, but at its core, it comes from messaging that works. What are the key messages about our product differentiation? What are the key messages about our product? And then the rest is just optimization into the right targets. Uh, it, it is interesting because you guys do spend a ton on marketing. Uh, Pre-pandemic, it was 33% of sales. Last year, you had the, the, a lot of things working for you. It was only 29% of sales, even though it was a lot more money, but there were a lot more sales. Did you find that the how consumers received digital marketing during the pandemic changed from what it was before? Were they more yeah, open well, to it? Were there different messages that, that worked? That, yeah, the simple way I'd say it is, um, I, I mean, he, here's here's an interesting lens to look through. As a manufacturer that has had, you know, incredible growth, I mean, our, our, our compound annual growth rate over the last five years has been 78%. For a manufacturer, that's kind of nuts. I mean, it's just, you know, growing yeah. a manufacturing capability that fast breaks companies, and it's broken us many times. And we've had to really mature operations to, to go from, you know, a single machine making these things to now one and a half million square feet of space that we're building into in five years. Um, we've been capacity constrained our entire history, and we felt that last year. And what that means is through most of our life, we sell every unit we make, which very few retailers can say that. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. sell every unit we make. Last year, we basically sold the exact same beds at the exact same product mix and price points we would have if the pandemic hadn't happened. We were just able to find that customer that would have bought offline, shifted online. So yeah, there was a remarkable sort of fungibility of consumers that hadn't been shopping online and hadn't been willing to buy online that out of necessity moved online. And I think we've transformed the industry as a result. I think there is a bigger buyer online indefinitely now. I mean, there's a pendulum swing back. It's not going to be as online as it was out of necessity. But in the end, we're going to be more online than we were when this started. And that's great for a brand like ours. Yeah, it's it, it really is. The, the transformation of so many things have been accelerated. We keep hearing that story over and over again. What behaviors for your company do you think have changed forever that happened during the pandemic? Is there going to be more work from home? Is there going to be less corporate travel? Is there going to, I don't know. Yeah, we, again, we're, we're over 1,600 employees now, the vast majority of which are, are manufacturing and logistics, and, as well as things like field Which support. they won't do from home. <laughs> yeah, they can't do that from home. So we had to, well, part of what's changed for us is, is a ever-growing focus on, on what I just say, the safety and welfare of our employees. Um, if we couldn't make product, our business wouldn't exist. So through the pandemic, we had to significantly... Uh, sort of retool our operations to make sure we were creating a healthy, safe work environment for our employees, um, and, and even just acquiring talent. Um, there was, uh, you know, with all of the, um, the, the the stimulus that was out there to offset things like unemployment, I mean, the, the federal subsidies of $600 uh, 
the, the $600 um, subsidy that was out there. Um, there were, uh, if you're making, you know, 12, 13, $14 an hour, it was at a point that through, through the summer last year, you could make more money not working than working. You could actually go into unemployment, take all the subsidies and net have a really nice summer staying at home and safe without being in the workforce. So, you yeah. know, sort of that working class side of things was very challenging last year and we're still not fully out of it. And, and frankly, with the child credit coming out right now, I think we're going to see some of that again, where there is, you know, we have not fully deployed all of the available labor in the U.S. And as a manufacturer, that is a challenge and continues to be. And yet those those same checks being written are going right into your top line with people buying mattresses. Is, that must have had a big effect on your business. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. On the demand side, this is terrific for us. On the supply right. side, our ability to manufacture, <laughs> it's a challenge. And it ultimately plays out in eroding margins. I mean, we have had to significantly increase our labor rates over the last couple of years in order to get the talent we need. Um, now, fortunately, we've also been able to take price actions and raise pricing to offset uh, but uh, but yeah, the, the uh, gross margins get challenged as these labor rates go up. So let me ask you about right now. What's happening with labor costs right now? Are you still raising uh, uh, pay scales across the board? And number two, I want to ask you about you know your raw materials costs because your raw your principal raw material is probably plastic, and and plastics made from oil and oils at seventy five bucks a barrel right now. That's got to have a big effect. Yeah, we are are. Uh Labor is absolutely going up. I mean, we, uh, a small little retail you may have heard of called Amazon has a billboard not far from our office advertising rates in their distribution center near our plant at $2 more an hour than we were paying. Um, that every one of our employees saw every day as they drive to work. So, yeah, you know, we've had to raise our rates about $2 an hour to, to compete with market forces, even though to all of our with benefits. Billboard. <laughs> compete with that billboard. And then there's another retailer that has a similar one. Um, our benefits all in are much better. But at the end of the day, that that marquee price point matters a lot. And uh, yeah, we have seen significant inflation in labor. And that is a, a big component in our, our, our cost of goods. You know, our, on, on raw materials like um, like mineral oil and, pl and the, the plastic elastomers we use in our elastic polymer, those we've we've had less pressure on. Uh, the cost of, of foam has gone up and we have some foam in our product. Um, uh, freight is one area that we've seen significant increase in costs. And again, you have to think of us more like a furniture company. Our, yeah. we're, we're, we're not, you know, F FedEx and UPS can only help us on a portion of our product because they cap out at about 150 pounds and we have some very heavy items. So uh, we, we are living in the world of freight, and freight, both inbound and outbound, has had significant increase in costs. What kind of percentage are you talking about there? Oh, goodness. All in? I mean, it's way into double-digit percentages. Um, really? I, you know, if, if we were to, yeah, I, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's significant. That's interesting. And uh, and so how far out do you see that? Because it's the other thing that you know, we're listening to conference calls every day and and the projections, keep, I got to tell you, keep getting pushed out. We're starting to hear about next year. We're hearing about shipping problems lasting until next year. We're hearing about semiconductor shortages going into 2022. Yeah. Uh, well, even, 
yeah, semiconductor impacts us less, but like, you know, for example, we have uh, adjustable power bases, you know, adjustable bases under the mattress that have electronic components. I mean, we, we've got uh, designs we're working on that very common electronic components you know, have 50 week lead times. Um, it's, wow. it's, I've never seen it. Um, no. So, uh, you know, and there, there's fascinating secondary markets on these components as they have long shelf life and people overbuy, and it's it's just a fascinating space. Um, but yeah, those are are legitimate challenges. Freight, I mean, with FedEx and UPS, I, I mean, the fact that Amazon is bigger than both of them combined now on their logistics right. is tells you how much of a capacity gap there is right now. So, I mean, we, we couldn't put all of our business with either one of them because they don't have enough capacity to service us individually. Um, and, uh, and beyond that, as you get into, you know, heavier freight, um, it's, it's very taxed right now. And it's not just inflationary, it's lack of capacity. And you don't solve that overnight. Uh, and demand wow. continues to grow for these, these channels. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's not going to be a simple fix and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it will be, I, I anticipate years before this is all fully resolved. Well, it's gotta be nice for being addressing this from a place of profitability finally. For sure. And, and it gives us, I mean, our, look, as a, as a truly vertically integrated brand, our number one goal is to own our destiny and it's both up and downstream. Um, and it creates opportunities. I mean, near our current manufacturing facilities, we do our own local delivery. And uh, it turns out it's much higher customer satisfaction and it's lower cost all in. Um, so, I mean, we continue to look for ways to be disruptive in, you know, in, in margin accretive and EBITDA accretive ways. And uh, fortunately, generally, these are great for the customer as well. I'm going to avoid making any jokes about you must be sleeping well. But, Joe, thank you very much. Joe Megabo is the CEO of Purple Innovations, uh, joining us here in the Drill Down. Well, up next, the Drill Down Bite. We're going to tell you that one number that means a whole lot. We told you about that massive marketing expense. How much did this company spend last year on marketing? It's going to knock your socks off. We'll tell you that number right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you like The Drill Down as much as we do, how could you not? Go on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. Let the rest of the world know why you like this show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Last year, Purple Innovation spent $187,991,000 on marketing. And yet that was only 29% of revenues, a lot less than it had been percentage-wise, Isaac, the year before. All right, that's all for The Drill Down today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.